don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the archive, fragments and forces of indigeneity, with Reni Samawani. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Renissa Mawani, who is um, a professor at the uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, she teaches sociology, but she is not trained in sociology, and she's working in uh, legal history, but she's not trained in legal history, and uh, she also uh, she's also working uh, in uh, critical theory which I didn't know, but apparently is not very uh, 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 combinable with, with history in general. So there's uh, some interesting uh, interesting bridges and tensions that are uh, happening around you, Renissa, that uh, uh, I'm sure we would, uh, we would touch upon. Hello. Hi. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. No, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Uh, so today we're going to talk about... Um, uh, we're going to talk about law and archive, and um, it's, uh, this conversation will be um, based on, a, on an article that you, you were kind enough to send me uh, that you wrote two years ago, I think, that was called Law's Archive. But maybe before even uh, really starting this conversation, could you maybe tell us um, what your recent work has been about? I think you're finishing a, a forthcoming book. Sure. I've been working on a book for uh, the last five years called Across Oceans of Law, and the book is uh, focused on a ship, uh, the Komagata Maru. It was a ship flying under a Japanese flag, um, chartered in Hong Kong by a British Indian uh, uh, migrant um, and railway contractor who brought 376 passengers who were from Punjab to Vancouver. And this month is actually the ship's centenary, so it's been 100 years since the ship was sent back. Um, it, many of the passengers, including the charter, um, had lived in various places in East and Southeast Asia um, and had very few sort of immediate uh, ties to India. So um, Gurdit Singh, the man who charted the ship, had been living in um, in uh, Malaya and Singapore for over for about a decade and a half, um, and so the ship was very interesting to me because um, it's really been memorialized as a Canadian as a story of Canadian immigration exclusion, um, and yet it has all of these ties to various places in the world. Right, so we have India, we have. Um, Hong Kong, we have Singapore, Malaya, uh, Japan, uh, South Africa, because there were many uh, sympathizers in South Africa who wrote letters and who, uh, you know, made remarks and comments in, uh, uh, particularly in Gandhi's newspaper, Indian Opinion. Um, and Gurdit Singh and other people who had been involved in trying to um, allow you know, the ship to actually land in Vancouver, had these amazingly itinerant lives. Um, so it was curious to me as to how this ship could actually be uh, 
conceptualized solely as a story of Canadian immigration. Um, and so uh, part of the problem has been a problem of the archive, right, which is that many of the, um, the recollections and narratives have actually drawn on sources in Canada. Um, one book uh, has drawn a little bit from the British Library. Um, very few have actually drawn from Indian archives or from archives in Japan, Malaya, Singapore. Um, and so one of the reasons why it's taken so long is trying to sort of compile as much of this information as possible. Um, and then the other problem is that many of the uh, archival sources that exist in Japan and elsewhere are in, well, Japanese, right? Um, and uh, so I've been compiling all this and have, over the years, become much more interested in the ship. Um, so part of the problem, as I see it, in terms of how this story is narrated, is that it's all about these people. There's very little sort of emphasis on the ship itself, and yet the ship had these multiple lives. Um, and the ship also, you know, it, was, it never actually docked in Vancouver. It was in the harbor, which was still within Canada's jurisdiction because it was within three miles um, from shore. Uh, but the water was also central. And so I decided that I was going to think about uh, the ship and its uh, global movements through the ocean, um, hence the title Across Oceans of Law. Um, so I'm thinking about the ocean in a literal sense, right? The oceans that the ship traversed, so the Indian and Pacific Oceans, um, but also thinking about oceans in an, a sort of analytic frame um, and to think about the ways in which oceans might actually allow us to think about movement, mobility, um, and the sort of uh, other surfaces, um, the in-betweenness of continents and territories. Um, and also about time. So the ship's journey is clearly very geographical, right? Um, but one of the interesting things is, to me, is that there is this um, sort of in-between, uh, whether we're talking about the Middle Passage um, or uh, the length of time it takes for colonial officials to send a telegram or to send a letter, there is this in-between that doesn't seem to be captured through the, you know, map, right, through the, through the geographical map. Um, and so I, I actually became very have become very interested in time and have become very interested in the relationship between the ocean and time. Um, because in the process of doing uh, my work around this project, I've come to realize that there is actually quite a interesting literature on time and temporality, um, but most of that literature tends to privilege land, right? So we hear about, you know, the ways in which the railway, for example, created a demand in the 19th century for a standard and unified conception of time. Um, but that actually comes much earlier in the context of the ship. Um, so the quest for longitude, for example, was all, uh, all about a quest for time. Um, or even if we think earlier than that, um, the ways in which the the ways in which time was central and centrally organized on the ship around the watch, right? Um, that sailors would have this four-hour mm. um, 
period during which they would, you know, uh, be stationed and be watching to see what's happening. Um, so I'm, so this is a book about time, uh, law and empire, and it's, um, sort of narrated through the journey of the ship and through the ship itself. Well, and I, I noticed that you, you didn't talk about history, you talked about story, which already uh, put us in, there, in this tension between those two words, one, one claiming a sort of objectivity when the other uh, accepts, uh, embraces uh, the subjectivity of narrative in, in, uh, in a collective uh, uh, event. Uh, and which which uh, definitely brings us to the to the question of the of the archive as a sort of uh, a, a vessel or a receptacle of, of those narratives. Um, so in the text I mentioned earlier, Lowe's archives that you wrote, uh, you start by you start by giving an account of um, uh, of how the archive has been. Uh, has been used as a as a colonial uh, weapon. I mean, you, you quote uh, Edouard Said, who says that uh, uh, Orientalism, uh, uh, which is obviously the the main uh, the main word that we attribute to Edouard Said, Orientalism is a form of archive. Maybe uh, you could tell us tell us why. And and um, and I think maybe in this conversation we can follow the same path of starting to introduce the archive. And then going towards uh, what we're interested in, which is uh, the law itself. Uh, so uh, the very, very beginning of the text describes the, the looting of, of uh, the Iraqi um, uh, uh, National Library after the, after the U.S. and British invasion. Uh, could we maybe start from it? From sure. There? Um, so the so the article, as you said begins with the uh, looting of the Iraqi National Library. Um, and what's interesting is that um, at the time, there was very little sort of Western uh, response to that. Um, so the looting was actually um, problematized by archivists and by Iraqis, right? Um, what would the destruction of these documents mean for the future of Iraq? What would the documents mean for the history of Iraq? Um, and there was very little sort of response. But then, interestingly, a few years later, um, that became a very central sort of mandate, preserving the history of Iraq, right? Um, and the uh, U.S. government actually brought many documents to Stanford to uh, be digitized um, as part of that sort of preservation process. Um, and so that was an interesting sort of tension to, to think about the tension of the archive itself um, and which is why I begin there right to think about what is the relationship between destruction and preservation um, and what are the sort of what is the political project that underpins and animates that sort of dynamic of uh, destruction and preservation and production um, and what was a, what was a real interest to me was that, um, as someone who spent a lot of time in the archives um, and who has, who I do get very excited when I receive documents and boxes, part of it is, you know, not knowing what to expect, um, not knowing what you'll find, um, you know, having access to the lives of other people who um, have long 
deceased, um, or in some cases who may still be alive or whose descendants are alive. Um, and so I was struck, and but also, so, so having those sort of affective attachments to the archive on the one hand, um, while, you know, pursuing um, uh, legal history, but then on the other hand, the fact that uh, the archive had only been problematized in certain domains, right? So there's been quite a uh, robust literature around the archive in history, uh, written by people who are either historians or sort of on the cusp of history, historical anthropologists uh, from subaltern and postcolonial studies, um, including you know drawing on well drawing on the insights of uh, Foucault's Archaeology of Knowledge and Derrida's Archive Fever. Um, but also from the work of Said, right, talking about how, as you point out, Orientalism is a product of the archive, right? It's something that gets produced. Um, and so it was amazing to me to see all of this literature that has been clearly very influential in my own work um, to thinking about the sort of ontological and, and epistemic conditions of colonialism um, but that, and some of those people have actually, you know, written to, or, or some of the processes that they were writing about were in fact uh, about law, right? So I'm thinking of some of the earlier subaltern studies um, work, um, thinking of the work of Gayatri Spivak, um, and you know her writing on the Rani of Sirmur, um, you know, thinking about whether the subaltern woman can speak. Um, so all of these were sort of uh, broaching questions of law, and yet the archive had been so uh, interestingly problematized in the context of, of history, sort of writ large, and not in the context of law. Now, that's not to say that legal historians or legal scholars don't actually think about their sources, um, but I think that the kinds of questions that were being uh, put forward and were being asked and problematized by historical sociologists and sort of uh, historians of, you know, uh, colonialism and of imperialism were of a very different nature than uh, the questions being asked, well, the questions being posed or contemplated by legal historians and legal scholars. Um, and so this might get us back to the tension that you introduced in my own work around, you know, critical theory and legal history. I mean, I think that um, one of the places where that tension is between history and theory is really sort of dissolved is in these discussions about the archive, mm -hmm. right? So many of these people are deeply informed by, um, you know, the work of philosophers um, and are raising really compelling questions. Uh, but the I think that the effects have been less significant in the context of law, um, and you know I'm not really sure I'm not sure if it's because colonial and postcolonial studies or the you know the critique of postcolonialism has had uh, a more limited or sort of restrained impact in the field of law and legal studies than it has in the disciplines of history, anthropology, comparative literature. Um, I'm not sure if that's it, or I'm not sure if, you know, the the question is sort of uh, uh, more, pro if, the, if the issue is more prosaic, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, there have, there is a very sort of strong tradition of um, uh, 
critical legal studies that has engaged the work of Derrida um, and Foucault and others. And what was interesting to me when I started writing this, so the one problem was around the fact that the archive hadn't been problematized in the field of law and legal studies, but then the other was that um, Derrida's force of law had 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 quite a significant effect, um, mostly through critical legal studies, and yet archive fever hadn't. Um, so one of the other sort of objectives of the article was to actually try to put the two in conversation with each other somehow, mm-hmm. um, so that we have a sense of, um, you know, how these are speaking to one another, if at all, mm-hmm. and how they might actually help us to how this discussion or this dialogue between these two texts might actually help us to um, think about something that legal historians and legal scholars haven't been thinking about mm-hmm. in the way that I would want them to. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, maybe I should insist on the on the fact that here we, we're talking extremely literally of how do you archive the law, let's say. It's, it's, it, it is exactly as, as it sounds. And you, you have this sentence in the article that, that struck me where you say, and I quote, uh, law rarely engages with its textuality. I mean, just a small sentence, but it's, uh, it's, it's very, very interesting to think that uh, law understood at least in a, in a, at, at the very least, in a, in a, Western, uh, in a Western point of view, is, um, requires uh, to, be, to be written, basically. And um, and so so those those pieces of text needs to be archived somewhere. And the, this, this the fact that you insisted on that made me wonder if if we if we do this in, in this in this understanding of, of the law, uh, if we do destroy the text of the law, does the law still apply or doesn't? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think uh, so. I think on the. I think my response might actually, or I might be much more critical of that line in the paper mm-hmm. than I was when I wrote it, in part because I've been thinking a lot about law and time. Um, and the temporality of law is does actually require its own citation, right, um, in terms of you know citing precedent, in terms of uh, making reference to what came before. But I think what I was trying to get at in that... Uh, in talking about, you know, uh, the law's inability to sort of deal with its own textuality is partly that those are not the sorts of dynamics that we think about when we think about law, right? Um, So, yes, the law always makes reference to what came before, um, but it's always imagined anew. So it's never the same as it was, right? It's always... Um, it always takes on a new significance or a different resonance um, based on the particular circumstances, based on the particular conditions, um, you know, whether they're the conditions of the case or the geopolitical conditions um, or the conditions of the future, right? How is this going to, how is this judgment or this decision going to be read um, in, you know, 50 years from now? Um, so that's the, that's one aspect of, what we might think of as case law, where this sort of intertextuality becomes really important. But I think in the context of statute law, we're less sort of um, privy to 
law's own self-referentiality, right? Um, so a law, I mean, there is an entire bureaucratic process and um, uh, textual process through which laws are enacted um, and repealed. Um, and we're not often um, privy to that whole process of intertextuality, right? Which is always referring to um, things before, which is always a self-referential sense of authority, if you will. Um, but that's something that often gets erased uh, when we think about law as law. So there's a wonderful book, which you may know, by Cornelia Visman that I, um, called Files, that I reference in the text um, and who also draws from uh, Derrida's Archive Fever. And, you know, one of the arguments that she makes is that law is based on files, right? And the file is often completely absent from the end product that we often think of as law, if it is an end product at all. Um, so, so I think I would qualify the, the uh, argument somewhat in terms of what we're actually thinking about when we're thinking about law. And as I say, that, you know, that comes very much from, um, some sort of work that I've been doing since writing this article um, around law and time and what law's time actually looks like mm -hmm. um, and how law's time is drawn in part from, from its archive, from its processes of archiving, from its processes of self-referentiality. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose my question was also referring... Uh, to a conversation I already had with uh, our common friend, uh, Andreas Filipopoulos, who, uh, uh, about this very peculiar characteristic of the, of the law, again, understood, understood in, in, in Western uh, uh, thinking, and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, more later, but this very peculiarity of the law to, um, to have for axiom that you shall know the law uh, uh, in order for it to be applied. Like, you, like not knowing the law is already illegal somehow, and so so because of that, there's there are an entire semiotic that is uh, um, applied to things to make the law instantly knowable. But obviously, there is a the the the, the most um, Absolute means of this uh, of this semiotic is 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 the text itself on which the law is written. So I, I suppose that's that's where I came from when when I asked. So if we destroy the text, if we destroy the semiotic, what what happens in terms of legal legal situation? Well, I think it still persists, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think that it's part of our habitus. Uh, I think that the semiotic is so internalized. I mean, clearly we can never know all the laws that exist, right? But there are, we're constantly uh, confronted by symbols of, uh, of legality, of authority, of illegality, of the boundaries between them. Um, so I think in many ways it doesn't, you know, fully matter if mm -hmm. we um, obliterate the text. I think that it's become so much part of our, you know, Western habitus that, um, in many ways, it's it's uh, inconsequential. I mean, it's interesting that you know if we think about the common law, the uh, the common law 
was, you know, thought to exist in this, is thought to exist, you know, in this, or emerge from this period of immemoriality, right? That it's out of time, that it just sort of emerged, that it's part of this very long historical trajectory um, to which there really is no origin, right? We're just supposed to have faith, or there's a metaphysical origin, we're just supposed to have faith that it exists. Um, And in many ways, that origin isn't necessarily textual, right? Um, But it spawned a whole set of processes and practices that uh, completely engulf us and even uh, suffocate us um, atmospherically, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, in Andreas's sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so earlier I was mentioning that, uh, uh, again, we should be careful about defining uh, whose law it is we might be talking about because... In your text, you you quote this uh, Australian in, indigenous scholar Irene Watson, who says who talks about the the, the indigenous um, uh, understanding of law, and she says, and I quote, "Our laws are lived as a way of life. They are not written down because the knowledge of the law comes through the living of it. As law is lived, sung, danced, painted, eaten, walked upon, and loved, law lives in all things." So clearly, we have here a non-archivable uh, forms of law, but uh, but somehow still uh, still enacting itself through the praxis somehow. Or maybe the archive is different, right? Mm. So it's not an archive or a repository where documents are filed or files are filed, um, but it's an archive of experience. It's mm. an archive of embodiment. Um, so I mean. One of the, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I um, sort of insisted on having um, this kind of, I mean, there is a, a sort of strange juxtaposition to in the article itself because on the one hand, um, you know, I'm, I am talking very much at the in the first part about. Uh, subaltern studies and post-colonial studies and the archive, much of which is focused on India, which is an area that in which I work. Um, and then the other half of the article is really focused on questions of indigeneity and indigenous law, which is also an area in which I work. Um, and so the tension is completely reconcilable to me because these are sort of both field. these are fields in which... Um, I'm situated, and which I've tried to sort of join in uh, in my first book. Um, but the I, you know, I was really insistent on having the um, on having this discussion about indigeneity, in part because I think that uh, you know this. Well, this is one of the sort of ongoing problematics in um, in places like Canada, the U.S., Australia. New Zealand, where land claims are still being articulated and understood through law as text, as opposed to, you know, law as cosmology or as experience or as um, oral history. Um, and but I think it also, in hindsight, I think that it also really forces uh, uh, a or invites. Uh, thinking about what exactly the archive is, right, and whether the archive is much more expansive than, and the, and particularly the archive of law is much more expansive than 
um, you know, simply a text or a set of texts or a proliferation of texts, um, and whether we, you know, whether it might be helpful to to think about Law's archive as being um, uncontainable within itself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, you just mentioned your first book, uh, Colonial Proximities. Maybe it, it might be a, a, a parenthesis within the, within this podcast, but would you mind maybe telling telling us more about uh, about it? Sure. Um, so, Colonial Proximities is uh, a legal history that um, thinks about indigenous uh, dispossession and non-European migration, principally Chinese migration, uh, within the same conceptual frame. So, in uh, British Columbia. In British Columbia. So I was uh, very struck um, when I started working on my dissertation um, by the ways in which um, histories have been periodized, histories of colonialism have been periodized, so that you know, we have this wonderful literature talking about encounters and, you know, whether they're violent or um, amicable or, uh, um, you know, the range, right, um, of encounters between Europeans and Indigenous people. And then in subsequent decades, the encounters between Europeans and migrants from places like China, Japan, and India, principally. Um, and... I knew this couldn't be possible because the dates just obviously didn't match up, right? Um, Chinese migrants had been coming to uh, to the Pacific Northwest for hundreds of years. Um, my own family history sort of raised a series of questions for me um, about the sort of the temporal and geographical impositions, what I saw as temporal and geographical impositions on colonial histories. Um, so my family migrated from um, Gujarat on the northwestern part of, uh, of India uh, via ship uh, in the 19th century to East Africa to work as um, laborers on the railway, on the British Railway. And um, they settled there, and the last four generations have lived in uh, in. East Africa, including I was born there as well, um, and then I came to Canada when I was quite young, and so I knew that those these dynamics existed, right? And it's been it's been really interesting to sort of go back and look at some of the um, discussions about um, British Indians in in East Africa um, and their interactions with. Um, indigenous Africans, um, as well as in South Africa. So I knew that there were, you know, that these dynamics must have uh, existed, these encounters must have existed. And um, so the book actually looks at a series of encounters um, around uh, labor in the Salmon Canneries, around uh, slavery and what was called slavery and prostitution, um, around the sale of liquor, and then the last two chapters are around the sale of liquor. And what's particularly interesting to me is to see the ways in which these, uh, I mean, an encounter in the law, encounters happened all the time, right? And they get archived in the law mm. when something goes wrong. So I was really interested in, in looking at the ways in which um, judges and lawyers and colonial authorities actually 
sort of flagged these cross-racial encounters um, and also really interested in the kinds of um, regimes of race that they produced, right? So instead of thinking of race as something that's solely um, binary, sort of fitting into this black-white colonizer-colonized framework or duality, I was trying to think about the plurality of racisms that were produced through these um, often coercive and violent colonial encounters. Um, and so so my first book was partly inspired by sort of biographical concerns, um, but also very much inspired by um, sort of epistemic concerns about how, you know, we think about the project of colonization um, and how we think about the British Empire. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose that brings us back to the, to the idea of the archive because of, uh, we, were, we were mentioning their, uh, the denial to, uh, uh, for oral history to, so oral indigenous history to, uh, to enter in a sort of uh, uh, national and civilizational projects of, of archival of, of, of the past. And I think it, it also ask the question, when do you start the archive? Like when, because obviously uh, when you start is a moment, is a key moment that deny whatever happens before, isn't it? Yeah, abs- I mean, absolutely. So one, one, of the, one of the limits of the book, um, I think, is obviously that there are very few indigenous voices, right? So I use... Uh, um, I mean, I draw from lower court sort of police records where there are depositions and, you know, affidavits and things like that that are uh, um, either written or uh, transcribed, um, you know, or testimony transcribed of um, indigenous witnesses um, and Chinese witnesses. Um, and, you know, the issue of, um, of where you start, I think, is really key and you know, it's always been interesting to me to also see the ways in which historians tend to periodize their uh, their work, right? That, oh, you know, I'm a modernist, or I'm a medievalist, or, you know, I do post-World War, Cold War history. Um, and, you know, part of that, I think, is, well, it is very much, it it is a mode of containment, but it also has, I think, serious political and uh, uh, epistemic sort of implications for one's work. Um, so we don't often think about, you know, periodization as being a, a sort of, uh, if I can use a geographical metaphor, as a practice of cartography, right, of sort of containment. Um, we think of maps the way they, they artificially contain uh, territories, mm-hmm. right, that have that are expansive, that are not necessarily divided or bordered in the ways that um, they are on the page. You know, people don't live that way. Um, So in the same way, I mean, I think that it's really fascinating to think about the ways in which uh, historians are taught to periodize, right, to align themselves with a particular temporal uh, period, um, which is about cordoning off um, sort of drawing lines um, in much the same way that cartographic practices are um, that carry serious implications in terms of how we think about 
problems, right? How we think about uh, whether they're problems of coloniality or they're problems of uh, race and racism. Um, these sort of constraints have have a significant effect. Um, something else I'm, I'm very interested in, and uh, that's actually something we we talked about uh, with our other common friend, uh, Gaston Gordillo, uh, on, on the other side of the world behind you uh, uh, another day, uh, is the, the destruction of the archive. I mean, in, in the conversation with Gaston, it was, a, it was not about the archive itself, but it, uh, in general about, about signs, um, signs of belonging to uh, certain civilizations that are that are being uh, annihilated and, and that obviously have a, a stronger implications than the strictly material one uh, in the sense that there's uh, there is a sort of denial, a retroactive denial of existence of, of, uh, of, uh, of a given civilization. Uh, in this conversation, we were, t- we were talking about it in the, in the, in the, in the Palestinian villages destroyed after the Nakba on their Israeli territory after 49. Uh, but in, in general, there's, um, there's something very interesting in, uh, in, in, uh, in this destruction, and they, they, don't, they don't always have the same uh, uh, purpose, because sometimes it's also destruction of your own archive, and you, you're, you're talking in the article about the, um, the, the, the destructions of uh, dozens of binders of documents about their uh, to to cover up the the massacre of uh, done by the U.S. Army of an Iraqi uh, village in 2005. Yeah. Uh, so, so in that case, it's in that case it, you, we destroy the archive to to hide, like to 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 blur, to erase a part of history that would be detrimental to their to the collective narrative. So, could you tell us more about that? Sure. I mean. So destruction takes many forms, right? I think it could be this sort of physical destruction, the burning of binders, as I discuss in in the article itself. Um, but it could also be, you know, keeping things secret, right? So as I was finishing that uh, um, the article, the uh, British government had just uh, given access to all of the documents. Um, of torture and all the atrocities that they committed in Kenya uh, during the Mau Mau Rebellion, right? And those documents were sealed for decades. Um, and, you know, we can we can think about, I mean, okay, they weren't sort of physically destroyed, right? But they were um, kept out of the public imaginary and, um, you know, we had no access to the sort of we had no access to this particular account of what happened. Um, So I think it's important to think about destruction in, you know, a number of different ways, right? Um, And destruction also happens through lack of care or lack of attention to preservation. Um, So this has become a really big concern in many, um, for many sort of actual archives. Um, but I think it's also really important to keep in mind that um, that this is also about the denial of uh, 
of humanity in existence. Um, so when you were talking about Gaston's work and, and talking about the destruction of these uh, villages in Palestine during the Nakba, I mean, I see that as very similar to the destruction of documents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no sort of written textual account which we tend to fetishize about what happened. I'm sure there are, you know, hundreds of Iraqis that would come forth and and have come forth to talk about the massacre, um, but because there isn't, a, you know, there isn't a document, there isn't um, because those documents or many of them have been destroyed and burned, um, you know, raises a lot of questions about the veracity of, you know, these accounts, right? Raises a lot of questions about the veracity of memory, um, and. I think that that's incredibly problematic because I think that the distinction between memory and and history is um, sort of uh, much more difficult to sustain than many historians might like to believe, Um, or the distinction between oral history and written history as well. But these are the kinds of questions that many Indigenous uh, communities are being, you know, forced to confront. Um, and in land claims cases, for example, where courts recognize, um, you know, uh, indigenous communities, some indigenous communities and not others, what we see is that the archive becomes really significant, right? So they go to the archive and they say, okay, well, let's see what was happening. Or, you know, there's one document that shows that, you know, there was um, uh, a group of people from Nation X or Nation Y, um, and so we think that this land belongs to them. Well, these these uh, uh, territorial habitations and imaginaries are much more complex than that, right? Um, and you know, uh, indigenous communities have a very different understanding of uh, what it means to be, you know, in a particular place, the kinds of relationships that. Uh, Indigenous communities have with one another. So there is a lot at stake in the destruction of the archive, however we conceive of that. And I'm not saying that because I think that there's a particular truth that one can uncover or um, draw from the archive. I mean, that would be pretty much the opposite of what I'm arguing. But I do think that because we live in a culture where the where text and where documents are so fetishized and given such a degree of authority, um, that the stakes are very high. Hmm. I, I can see how Archipelago starts to have a, a, a certain amount of podcasts because I'm going to make a third bridge uh, to the conversation I had with uh, uh, Nina Kolovratnik, who, uh, and we also actually talked about their, the post-Nakba uh, destructions. Uh, but she she um, she worked on her she worked on a legal case where an indigenous population uh, of New Mexico uh, is trying to claim their the ownership of their land, but because of their because of their uh, uh, principles, uh, they cannot produce any documents that represent their own land. So. Uh, we had a very interesting conversation about what what can be an, an alternative and a form of uh, a form of conciliation, uh, representative conciliation to to produce those evidence uh, to to be able to fight a case in uh, in court. So 
and to give her to give even her an, another uh, another account of uh, some things that's been made uh, on the for the phenomenalist papers uh, uh, the text that Nora Nora Kawi wrote also around the Derrida's archive fever and um, and also linking uh, cartography and, and archive as a as a uh, Colonial, colonial weapons, but also as potentially emancipatory uh, practices. Uh, Renisa, thank you so much for taking the time today. I think it uh, it was it was very very rich, and I'll I'll be sure to to add all the necessary bibliography uh, that we've been talking about today, which was uh, multiple. Thank you so much. Great, thank you.